Up next on episode 43 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss dealing with incompetent programmers, whether salaries should be public, dealing with technical debt, and programming for small businesses from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. You're on the road. Where are you again? Oh, in Miami Beach. And it sounds like it should be lovely, right? It should be beautiful and sunny and warm. And It's not. No, I just had a, like a, uh, a string of a bad luck. You sound terrible. You have a cold? I'm sorry. Uh, you, know, you know, I had a cold until about 2 o'clock, and just as I got over the cold, I got hay fever. This wow. Is, I can tell. Those of us with hay fever know the difference between a cold and hay fever. And I guess okay. I ran out of the, the hay fever medication. Well, this is not at all what I had gotten from watching Miami Vice. This is not the experience that I expect from Florida. We got, you know what, I'm just thinking, this is the fourth hotel I've been at in Miami Beach. I have never had a good experience at a Miami Beach hotel. <laughs> There's always something. Um, the, the hotel we were supposed to stay in, um, we got there at 11 p.m. and they were like, hi, we have a problem. We don't have your room. Oh, it's really rare. I've never had that happen. <laughs> have, you? have you had that happen? I, I have had, had that happen a couple of times. Uh, really? They just overbook. And you know, really? and, they, and then they make up some kind of story. Yeah, they always overbook because some people are going to cancel, right? But they always make up some kind of story. I don't mean to sound uh, um, paranoid here, but they have some kind of story about how there's somebody that didn't check out when they were supposed to, and they can't get a hold of them, and so they just don't have a room. And uh, they made a they made a reservation for us at a different hotel, which uh, you know, kind of is sort of nice, but it's not in a great location, and it's a kind of a noisy place. So the first night, we kept getting woken up by the partiers in the room next door because the walls are paper thin. Last night at about 4 a.m., the partiers in the room next door decided to have some fun with the fire alarms. And so the fire alarms are going off for an hour. And then the, the fire department came and ran some kind of gigantic air ventilation thing for an hour, which made a lot of noise. Anyway, I didn't get any sleep last night. Oh, wow. And uh, so that's, I think that's a... A, a, a kind of killer thing for a hotel if they can't give you a good night's sleep. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm sorry you're having such a bad experience. I hope this doesn't mean the future of web applications is in jeopardy. Uh, no, that was a pretty, the conference was pretty cool. Everybody there is talking. There was a, a really cool demo there. Um, did you see this thing? It's, a, it's called Atlas. Have you seen that? Somebody, come up? somebody was talking about this on Twitter. Yeah. They, Kevin Day was. It, it launched today. They did the demo at the uh, Future Web Apps, and it was really, really cool. Um, you can see the demo at their website, which is the number 280 Atlas. I, I think it's a Y Combinator startup, and what it is is basically like a kind of a visual basic for Objective-C is the best way to describe it. 
they're never going to describe it as that way, but it's got kind of a VB.net, like a web forms user interface where you drag things on and then the controls mm-hmm. can be anchored to the various sizes, to the various sides of the screen. And it takes care of all your layout for you, which is always a big pain in the ass with HTML and CSS. Right. And lets you build. I'm looking a- at the website. It's uh, very simple looking. Yeah. There's it, a video on it. it yeah. The, the video is awesome. It's, uh, People were really impressed by the demo. These things, you know, I, I can't really say. My experience has been a lot of people come up with cool app builder type applications. And the proof is really in the details and how well they get all the little obscure tiny details, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, right. a lot of times, you know, it looks great. You can build, a, you know, you can build, you can see their demo, you know, build an RSS reader in 10 steps without even using the keyboard, just clicking the mouse. And that works great, but then if you want your RSS reader to have, you know, red links instead of blue links, you spend, you know, the next nine months trying to track down a piece of code to override that thing. I'm not saying this is true. I'm just saying that sort of uh, all these interface builders do good demos. And uh, the, the longevity, you know, the real longevity comes if they can really do a great job of letting you build what you want to do. And the abstraction proves not to leak, so to speak. Right. So other than Atlas, what else have you heard or seen at Future of Web Apps that you feel is notable? Tell us about the Future of Web Applications, Joel Spolsky. Um, Tell us. I'm not really sure. Apparently nobody really talked about that today. <laughs> Jason well, Fried- Atlas is kind of like... Yeah, go ahead. Kind of the future. It's kind of, it's kind of the future. I mean, isn't there... Is isn't there- isn't Atlas the name of a uh, Ajax framework from Microsoft? Uh, it is. So are they going to get seasoned, desisted, or sued or something? Well, no, this is 280 Atlas. Oh, of course. Well, that would solve it if you had to call it that. I have no idea, actually. But tell, tell what else have you seen that you liked? Um, that's it. That was the only real demo that anybody had. Uh, there was a guy from Virgin, <laughs> Virgin Atlantic, I guess, or Virgin Brands or something like that, talking about branding. Oh, this is also the hotel where they just walk in in your room all the time. Come in! Uh, do I have to get up and go? At, at t- 10 p.m. last night, luckily I was still awake, 10 p.m. last night, they just opened the door. Like, they, they have a tendency to do that at some hotels. Is this a turndown thing? Yeah, and now, and now I have to go over there. Hi, come on in. Yeah, this is turndown. The turndown service is my favorite example of a good service disguised as uh, sorry, a bad service disguised as a good service, because it's sort of. Well, you know, you can put out the "do not disturb" sign. That's why they have that. I always forget, and you know, they, I've I've been to so many hotels that just ignore that. Really? No, I've they've everywhere I've done. We the first thing we do is put that out because we just don't want to be bothered. That is smart. They, you know, they knew they knew I was going to do that, and they took away that little sign. I don't have a strip sign. Yeah. So did you give your talk yet? Uh, yeah, I, I gave my talk, at, uh, and, uh, and I had managed to exactly buy the exact right amount of Sudafed and time it perfectly so that I could have a half-hour window of not actually sneezing violently. Because on the microphones in those concert halls, if you sneeze, oh, my God, at least two people will have a heart attack from the noise. <laughs> How'd your talk go? I think I was a little bit drugged. I'm not really sure. The, the, the other problem, for some reason, I was talking to the audio guys because the audio is always terrible in, 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 at these, on stage at these things. Sometimes it's terrible in the audience too. But on stage, you can never, you can never hear yourself. 
or you can't hear the other people that you're on stage with, or you're hearing yourself at an echo that's like one second delayed and it's causing you to get confused. And in this particular case, they'd come out with a new way to screw up the on-stage audio. There was like this really, really loud sibilance every time I said the letter S. Ooh, the sibilance. I remember that from like high school like film reels. There were some that every S they made was just like completely off the charts. Yeah. So I was trying to rewrite my script as I was going along to try to remove any words that had the letter S in it, but that was, I really didn't have the ability to concentrate it with all that Sudafed that I had taken. Anyhow, so I was talking later to the uh, audio guys, and I'm like, hey, you know, there's a lot of sibilance on stage there, and uh, I don't know, maybe you could turn down the treble or something on the monitors. And he said, yeah, you know, the truth is, this is a concert hall. It's designed for these, uh, you know, concerts for the orchestra or whatever. You could go on stage. We could have no amplification there and just talk at a natural volume, and everybody in the hall would hear you perfectly. But the trouble is, we want to bring in the big speakers and the microphones and all that kind of stuff, and we really can't do a good job of that. Which sort of begs the question, like, uh, why do we have microphones? Ooh, ooh, wait, wait, wait. You said begs the question. We yeah. got in trouble for that. I've, I got in trouble for that. We have to be careful using this phrase. Okay, let's figure it out. It definitely raises the question. I mean, it only begs the question if you ask a question, and then... I actually yeah. looked this up. There's, there's like a fact page. Of course, there's like a single-serving site thank on the you, internet just for this. People who are really pissed off about other people who are misusing this. I'm pretty sure. Um, I guess... Right. It's when you well, ask I, a question that only asks the question again, right? Uh, I, the, the definition was complicated. Like, I read the fact, and I still didn't fully understand it. What I got out of it was that it's essentially a mistranslation. The original translation of this phrase from Latin, or wherever the heck it was from, wasn't really correct. Yeah. So, all this time, it's been sort of morphing into this other thing that <laughs> sounds more like what it actually means. Because right now, it's, you know, you know flammable, inflammable, that whole cluster? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's it's kind of like that, where the word doesn't really make any sense anymore. Like, I feel like begs the question is just kind of broken beyond all repair. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So I don't really mind misusing it, but I just wanted to bring it up, up since there were a few people that were pretty ticked off about my misuse of it last time. So, Well, when I'm not all stoned on Sudafed 12-hour, the original The Good Stuff with the amphetamines. I, uh, I don't... Uh, well, you can make meth out of The Good special. Stuff. That's uh, the problem. <laughs> yeah, I know. You have to. Anyway, I had to sign away my life at some Miami Beach pharmacy. I had to prove my identity and sign all kinds of digital things. Right. What were we talking about? Oh, beg the question. Yeah, it's sorry. It's too too much work. I, I derailed us, but I, I apologize. Speaking you you of said you had a listener question. question. Did you did you want to do a listener question? Oh, we question? can do a listener question. Yeah. Oh, wait. But yeah. first, before we do that, let me ask a not not so listener question. How many? How many? How much karma do you need to to answer a question? None. Okay. How much karma do you need to add, to add a comment? Fifty. Oh, can we reverse that or something? Or I don't know. Or maybe well, I think adding a comment should be zero because what happens is that people can't leave comments, so they leave an answer. Like, oh, wait, hold on, hold on. There's a caveat to that, which is if you own the question. Yeah, you can leave comments. No, period. but that's not the case. It was, uh, you know, it was just somebody at Fog Creek that wanted to basically tell somebody who was asking a question about fog bugs, and he wanted to say, "Hey, you know, you, you can ask this on the Fog Creek tech support forums." That's a reasonable answer. Was it the answer? What was the question? Uh, what was the? What do you mean? Well, oh, it doesn't matter. Uh, the point is, uh, gee, I'm sure it, it, whatever the question was, it's begging it right now. <laughs> 
Well, okay, the, the, the rationale for that, and again, yeah. there's a huge disclaimer where if you ask a question, even with zero or one rep, we don't actually let you have zero or negative rep, um, you can absolutely leave as many comments as you want on every question, on the question and any answers to your question. Okay. Uh, the, the reason we don't allow random internet users to come in and leave comments is because there's no voting mechanism for comments. So if something spammy is left in a comment, that's a huge problem for us because we can't really, there's no voting, there's no tagging offensive. <laughs> comments are super, super lightweight, um, and we don't really track a ton of stuff about them. So letting just random internet users come in and do that would be pretty bad. Okay. So that's the I official sort of the answer. The trouble, though, is that that leads to the undesirable behavior of somebody comes in and they see a question and they, maybe they want to ask for clarification. You know, they want to do something that should be done in a comment, but they're new. And so they're forced to do it in an answer. And then, of course, people are like, that's not an answer. That's a comment. And they vote it down. And then they get pissed off. And now we have a new user that's trying to be helpful. And the very first thing that happens is he's getting voted down for leaving an answer that looks like it should have been a comment because it isn't really an answer. In good faith, because they were unable to leave a comment because they're new. And so right. their first experience is to get sort of, you know, spanked a little bit. Right. Well, welcome to the world. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we don't really have a good way around that at the moment. Um, I, I hear what you're saying, but I, I would tell that person to <laughs> look for other questions they can actually answer uh, before right. we're engaging in a lot of intra, you know, banter with other, you know, Stack Overflow users. Yeah, you don't want to talk to the Stack Overflow users. <laughs> They'll banter you around the room. That's strange. Also, hey, in Miami Beach, I was like, hey, February, and it wasn't that hot. So we went down to the beach on Saturday and sat in the sun for three hours at midday. And it was kind of cool because it was breezy and there were clouds. And I was like, this is nice. And then I got back to the room and my entire face was purple. Oh, yeah. Because I, I sort of forgot that you can get a sunburn. Wow. Just in general, because I haven't had a sunburn for years. Because usually it's hot and I know that it's hot. So I go and I sit in the shade. But in Miami, like, like on Saturday here, it was like very, very sunny but the wind was just cool enough and just consistent enough that you didn't feel the sun. You sort of thought, oh, it's mod moderate temperature outside. You know, Joel, I, I always thought of you a much more cosmopolitan traveler than this. Well, I thought you had I, done enough traveling that these sort of newbie yeah. mistakes would be avoidable for you. I know. I used to, I used to have this down pat, but this is just, uh, this is just <laughs> everything is failing. Yes. Miami Beach fail. Let's do uh, that question. I'm gonna yeah, sure. It's from uh, Matt Rogish. Hi, Joel and Jeff. My name is Matt Rogish uh, here in Lexington, Kentucky. And I just finished listening to Podcast 42's up driving up to Cincinnati. And the topic of kind of incompetent or at least marginal programmers came up right at the very end. And this is a something that brought a question to my mind as to how does one dispose, so to speak, uh, ethically, uh, you know, incompetent programmers. We've all encountered uh, people who just can't program their way out of a paper bag, and they bounce around from within organizations uh, and other things like that. How does one ethically get rid of them? Because I have been in positions where I've been asked, uh, you know, to give um, performance reviews and that kind of thing, and, uh, you know, what can you say legally and all the kind of stuff here in the U.S. Uh, to make sure that this person doesn't continue to do harm at other organizations. Thanks. Bye. Okay, well, I want to know what you can do about the housekeepers at hotels that come into your room when you're sitting there happily having a Skype conversation, 
and turn on the television. I'm like, what's that flashing from the other side of the room? She turned on the TV. Well, well, she's probably following her script to do the turn down. Well, what if I didn't want to watch TV? I know know how to turn on the TV. Now I can't turn it off because the headset doesn't reach. You got to put out the do not disturb flag, man. I I blame you for this. They took it away from me. I used to have a do not disturb flag. They like literally do not want me to put it. I'm just going to get some spray paint and put it on the door. Do not come in ever. <laughs> My room. Right. Talk to you. So getting, getting to this question. Oh, yeah. So I think, actually, you wrote a good article that I think covers, I think, some of this, which was it, about hitting the high notes. Oh, yeah. Well, that was about getting the great people. I didn't really say anything about getting rid of the... Well, that's, that's kind of what I'm saying, is that I think there's really maybe three kinds of organizations. The kinds of organizations that say, okay, we're only going to hire, we're going to have a really stringent vetting process. Uh-huh. And uh, actually, I had somebody over to my house, Chris Jester Young, who is a uh, Stack Overflow user uh-huh. from New Zealand who happens to be visiting the Bay Area. Yeah. And interesting story with Chris, he actually got a job through Stack Overflow. In other words, he met another user. Big. They were hanging out on IRC, uh-huh. and they had this conversation. And next thing you know, he's working remotely in New Zealand for this company uh, in the Bay Area, which was Perfect. cool. Uh, but one of the things he mentioned, we were talking about interview processes and how they can be really stressful. And he'd actually been, not to put Chris's business out there, but he had been through the Google interview process. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about that and how it's very puzzle-based and how, you know, I have some problems with the whole puzzle-based way of vetting yeah, people. Yeah, me too. Um, the interview process he had been through that he liked was they gave him a C program, and you'll like it because it's C. Huh. <laughs> and it had a bunch of bugs in it. Oh. And the task was, you know... Right figure out all the bugs and how we fix them and, you know, just take as long as you want. They were actually timing you, sort of, but they didn't tell you. <laughs> okay. uh, and Chris did very, very well. And he said some of the bugs were really obvious, like printf stuff, like where it was form- using the wrong format statements okay. that in C evidently causes everything to explode because it's right. C. It's just <laughs> Everything explodes it's, if you look at it wrong in C. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I thought that was a great idea because it emphasizes not puzzles, not greenfield, you know, create a new application, which is the process... I've done interviews where you create a little mini mm-hmm. app, but that's greenfield, right? right? You're not new code. You're almost always looking at other people's code and trying to figure it out and like, how do I do this? And why? What? What? What were they thinking when they did this? So I thought that was a neat idea. Um, so maybe you would want want to work for an organization that <laughs> has some kind of vetting process, right? That's one type of organization yeah. that would probably not end up with too many of these sort of people that are actively holding that's true i mean that's uh, one of the one of the items in the joel test remember that the original meaning of the joel test is this is something you asked employers to check if this is going to be a decent place to work and one of those items on the joel test is are programmers required to write code during the interviews and that was designed not as a complete manual for how to do interviews which i have that's a different thing but just as a simple rule of thumb do you have to write some code this is not writing code but you know that's a basic idea do you have to demonstrate during the interview that you have the capability of doing the job for which you're being hired to do? Or do you get the job in some other mechanism through some kind of seniority-type system or whatever? Right. I think it's difficult when you're at these organizations where <laughs> somehow these people become programmers, yeah. you know, air quote yeah. programmers. Um, it's kind of a sign that the organization has some problems. So <laughs> you basically have to fix the organization. That's really the, the big catch-22 sure. here. You're asking about, well... How do we get rid of this one bad programmer? It's the deeper question. How do you fix your organization so you don't have, you know, really bad programmers? I mean, you can have average programmers. I think that's the other tier of company you go for work for. A company that ha- has programmers that don't suck, you know, but they're not great. 
but you know, and there's nothing wrong with that because they're still competent. They can still move projects forward. I, I think in reference to his question, what he's complaining about, and rightfully so, is the type of developers that actively harm the project by working mm-hmm. on it. And that's the bottom tier of companies where you have these kind of people that actually can remain in the organization while basically doing active harm to the work, to the other the projects going on there and the other people. Well, it's usually... They're not trying. Yeah, it's usually possible for the team members to isolate them so the team members can just say, listen, go, you know, go work on the spell checker. And you don't really tell them that you don't have a spell checker. <laughs> just let them, let them mull over that problem for six months or something. Uh, and, and I've written an article called Getting Things Done When You're Only a Grunt, which is about how to get some of the Joel test things done when you have no authority in an organization whatsoever. This guy, Matt sort of sounded like he said he's been asked to do reviews for people, and it sort of sounded like he might have a little bit of authority in the matter. And, and uh, it, it is definitely the case that an organization or a company or a software team may have the best of intentions about only hiring good programmers, but some may still slip through, or they may you know, have some kind of old senior people or some people that came in as the nephew of the cousin of the CEO's wife and uh, can't be gotten rid of for some reason or another. And actually, I mean, the truth is, this is sort of a rationalization, but I always tell myself, if you have to fire somebody for incompetence, there's no way they could be liking that job that they were doing that they were incompetent at. You know, there aren't that many happy incompetents. They must be struggling. They must not enjoy their job. It, it has to be, right? A lot of times, the incompetence of a programmer is they're just not getting anything done because they really don't like programming, you know? Maybe if you could sort of... I don't know about that. If you could stand behind them and say, okay, write some code now. Do it. And if you could just sort of monitor them every minute of every day using a technique called pair programming or something, then maybe they would produce something, but they don't, they're just not that into it. And so they're... They're not coding. Or the other possibility is that they're just, they're just uh, not really smart enough to solve these problems. And when they try to solve them, you know, they're kind of unsuccessful. And t- to me, that seems like it should be a downer. Why would you want a job like that? Well, I, I, I disagree with some of that just based on personal experience where I've seen developers that were more or less not so horrible that they were ruining the project, but they weren't really moving it forward in any meaningful mm-hmm. way, which to me is a net negative. Either you're slightly helping or, or you're... You're hurting. Yeah, basically. You're basically preventing There's somebody. No you're, you're preventing somebody better from getting a position where they could do a better job. Well, exactly, exactly. And and these were very highly paid people mm-hmm. at the organizations that that I was in. So they had a pretty strong incentive to at least have the perception of they were actually doing their jobs. And I think again, it's a really a failing in the organization. So <laughs> the people that were in power should have realized that okay, we're paying this person a lot of money. And they really aren't very good mm-hmm. at what they're doing. So as a business, does that really make business sense? No, it doesn't. But they don't, people are too nice. The people that are in power, the people that are really in power are, are too high. You know, the people that, they're, they're too high above, they're, they're, they're high up there in the org chart. They don't really know what's going on. They have to rely on the people that are the middle level managers to actually say, this guy is not really pulling his weight. And those middle level managers are just nice guys. They don't want to be responsible for somebody losing their job. They, that's right. No, that. that's totally true. Totally true. You know, and so they sort um, of they so how do you, over and they try to be nice about it. Well, it's almost like this whole recession thing, like you keep bringing up, which I think is true. It's, a lot of, it's an excuse for a lot of companies to sort of cut some dead wood without looking like the bad guy. Yeah, yeah. and that's gonna be, there's going to be a lot of that happening. Right. So it, it, in short, it's a really, really tough problem um, because... You don't want to be a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, people need to make a living. Yeah. But on the other hand, 
I don't know. It's on business level. It doesn't really make sense. So, well, what can you do to help them find a career that they'll enjoy more? I mean, I've known you sort of have to address a specific issue about why they're not being such a good developer. You know, maybe their skills lie more in the humanities than in the sciences, and maybe that means they should move into sales uh, or uh, you know, user experience or um, marketing or. That, that's a good point, and, and I think we kind of touched on this in a previous podcast where it's like there's a whole sort of ecosystem of stuff that goes on around the programming. Um, and maybe at a large organization, which is where I, I, I personally saw this, one of the advantages of having a large organization, there's tons of different jobs mm-hmm. for everybody to try. Mm-hmm. So maybe go through a rotation thing, say, hey, you know, <laughs> instead of just you know, sitting down and programming all day, why don't you try <laughs> one of these other things yeah. that – we have an organization that's kind of related in the same group even, or maybe in a different group. It is very important. Maybe yeah. this would be more of an IT. Maybe this guy could be like a system administrator. Maybe he'd be really good at that, for example, mm-hmm. you know, because there's a lot of crossover there. There's, uh, it's true, and you, and you really have to look at the person's personality and figure out why they're not good. There's one particular case that I, I've known a lot of people like this. Uh, and they find it hard to be developers because they're a little bit too obsessive-compulsive. They're just too... Uh, you know, they need to get everything exactly perfectly right every single time. And they, they never just give up and turn it in. You know, they're just so, and they become too immersed in the details. And uh, I, I've known some, I, I knew a, a developer uh, who was like this, and eventually they told him, you know what, you're going to be a tester. And he was the best tester on the team, and he was much happier. And it just fit his personality oh, a lot cool. better. Yeah. Yeah, so, I, and I think maybe that's the best piece of advice here uh, for this question. It's just, you know, really encourage people to look strongly at, like, related positions that aren't necessarily coding, but, yeah. you know, in the same ecosystem where they can actually help you and not feel like, okay, they're not really contributing because that's not really helping the exactly. business. So that's good leadership, basically, is, is figuring out what works for that person and, you know, what you have available and how to, you know, gently sort of nudge them towards it. You can also probably make a good living. Is the house drug dealer for one of the clubs in this hotel I'm staying at, an allegedly five-star hotel. <laughs> well, hopefully you'll survive this uh, hotel experience. I, I had a, a question come up on Twitter, yeah. and I think we, we might have talked about this offline, mm-hmm. but I always wondered, okay, the question I posed on Twitter was, what would it be like if you worked in an organization where everybody knew everybody's salary? It was just public knowledge how much money everybody was making. Oh, yeah. So immediately I got a bunch of responses about, okay, well, that's how the government is, and that's how public schools are and universities and things like that. But I was really asking more about like commercial for-profit organizations. Well, um, yeah. And I, how do you guys do it at Fog Creek? Because the question came up, people wanted me to actually ask okay. you about this on Twitter. So luckily I just wrote an article about that for Inc. Magazine. It's going to be in the April issue. So if you can hold out another 27 days... That we can't. We can't hold it. We need it now. We need it now. We need to know now, Joel. Yeah, there's a there's an article on uh, Joel on software called the Fog Creek Compensation System or something, and it's really old. It's from before we started the company. But the basic idea is, although everybody doesn't know everybody else's salary, they can they can derive it because it's formulaic. Uh, we we were always afraid of that day that you came into the office and somebody had found the Excel spreadsheet on my computer and put it up on the <laughs> uh, you know on the on the on the uh, uh, refrigerator in the break room or something. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we knew that we had to have a system that you know, we had nothing, you know, if it got out, there, nobody would have anything to be embarrassed about. Nobody would have any reason to be angry. And um, 
And so the first thing we did is we just sort of eliminated all signs of subjectivity. It, it tries to be as objective a system as possible. It's not really performance-based. We came up with just about everything we could think of, and most of that's on my website on the Fog Creek Compensation article. But a lot of that we, uh, we took from an article that Steve McConnell wrote over at Constructs, which is called the Constructs Professional Ladder, if I'm not mistaken. And I think he was copying it from a Microsoft document of about the 1992 era or something. But the idea is you come up with very, very specific, objective ways to define a salary, and you make sure that everybody... In the same, at the same level, has the exact same salary. And, and at Fog Creek, there's, there's zero variation. So there's no reason you have to ask, why am I getting $2,000 more than him? Is because he was a better negotiator. Um, nope, we just have a completely objective system. So it works out okay. You know, Fog Creek has a kind of weird salary system in that um, people's base salaries are okay. I mean, they're competitive, but they're just kind of okay. And then um, we take all the profit at the end of the year and basically divide it up uh, among the employees. And so people are taking home gigantic year-end profit-sharing bonuses based on the company's profit, which is actually a very, very substantial part of their salary. And so it's really like when the company does well, everybody does well. And um, what that means is that the variation in base salary between programmer A and programmer B is uh, not that big a deal. Oh, interesting. I didn't know all that, actually. This is, I'm glad I asked you. I thought I sort of knew the answer to this. Yeah, it sort, of, it sort of evolved over time. Uh, the first, I mean, it, it sort of started out that we were, like I said, just afraid of that word getting out. We knew we had to have a fair system that could survive that. And, uh, and we came up with a, what I think is a pretty good list. It's pretty easy to keep it up to date uh, of very objective measures of what your salary should be. And then um, that gets you a level. And then for, for every level, there's just one salary. And that's the whole system. And that's how we define your base salary. I see. So it's like a mo- massively multiplayer online game where you level up and you have skill points that you yeah. distribute. Yeah, 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 different yeah. skills, very much like that. And, you know, That's people cool. always know what the system is. There's a few other little tweaks that I should mention that we do. One thing which recently, which I changed about it about six months ago. I, I don't know if you've noticed this, uh, but Microsoft has these two titles. They have Software Development Engineer (SDE), and then they have Software Development Engineer and Test (SDET). And what Microsoft does subtly is they subtly take their sort of their, I don't know how official this is or where this is going on, and it really pisses me off, is that they give a lot of lip service to the idea that software testing is as important a career as software development and coding. But then they go to all this trouble of making sure that the people that are doing the testing have a different title that they have to put on their resume and on their business card. And the only possible reason that you would want to have, that Microsoft would want their employees to have the title S-T-E-T on their resume instead of STE, is that everybody else in the industry has figured out that that's where Microsoft puts its second-class programmers, the people that they don't really want as programmers, uh, which I think is just stupid to sort of stratify things that way, and I, and I think it's sort of obnoxious. Uh, you know, testing really should be its own profession, and maybe they think that that's what they're doing. The net result is that uh, all the other employers on the market, when they see, for example, somebody shows up with an internship at Microsoft and they see that that kid was an intern in test instead of an intern in development, they know that that person was in Microsoft's second category, and they'll be less likely to give them a job, and that sort of allows Microsoft to treat testers as second-class citizens and to pay them less money because they have less career prospects outside of Microsoft. Um, and maybe I'm, being, maybe I'm being a little bit too paranoid about the reason for doing this. Maybe they have all the best intentions in the world and the best motivations in the world, but that just pissed me off, and so we just made a policy that 
uh, you know, everybody has always had the title member of technical staff. We just made a policy that whether you are a tester or a developer, you're, you're the same. You're on the same career ladder. You have the same criterion in determining your salary. You get the same pecking order and picking offices. You're just, you're just the same as the developers. Well, that's odd because I had always heard that Microsoft had a really good track for testers where they legitimately had as much career prospect as programmers. You know, there was almost no... And now I'm hearing sort of... I don't did. know. So why the second... Why do they need a separate title exactly? What's, what's going on with that? I don't know. But that's odd that you would make that criticism because I think in a lot of organizations it's much you, worse you know, if you're a You tester. know why they're saying that at Microsoft? They, they say there is a career path for testers because they don't want testers to get all uppity and try to get jobs as developers. Because they have, in fact, created a two-class citizen. You know, there's sort of the Brahmins and the, the untouchables. And, uh, and they, the last thing they want is testers to try to get jobs as programmers because it's annoying to tell them all over again that they don't have the programming chops. And so they say, no, no, well, no, you have to stay a tester because, you know, this in itself is an interesting career. And uh, it is an interesting career. It's an awesome career. Oh, anyway. Well, no, we need them to stay in that position because we've got to take the bad developers and make them testers, as we previously right, discussed. Right, right. See, so. that's sort of the problem. No, it's not the bad developers. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm it's kidding. The obsessive compulsive. Uh, this, is, this is a different. It really is a very. It's a different skill set to be a good tester. And there is a fantastic mm-hmm. career in, in testing, and there are great opportunities for that if you're interested in that kind of stuff and if that's what you like doing. And we've just eliminated any technical distinction between testers and developers, career-wise. Uh, just so that, just because that thing about Microsoft pissed me off. Right. What else? Uh, what else should I say about our salary system? So yeah. So um, uh, the, the the you know people look at the little thing up on our wiki, and it says you know you know at what level are you, are you contributing to projects? How many years of experience do you have? Education, blah blah blah. It all adds up to your level number, and everybody figures it out. That's cool. Uh, one th- one observation on Twitter that came up and. Uh, my actual Twitter comment was, I imagine if everybody knew everybody else's salary, it would be somewhat like Lord of the Flies. So you would always try to figure out who Piggy was and just <laughs> make sure that you were Piggy. And eventually the whole office but I think would be burnt down. Exactly. The whole place would just burn, be burned down. But I think if you have a rigid system where it's like, you know, there's a formula, right? Mm-hmm. And you, 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 you hew closely to the formula, there's no confusion about who's making what. Another comment I got on Twitter that I thought was very <laughs> insightful was that uh, if you find th- this guy said he had seen this happen, where the guy working next to you, one cube over, is making the same amount as uh-huh. you, but just sucks horribly, and it just completely ruins your motivation when you know you realize the person who <laughs> isn't contributing anything to the company is actively probably negative, is making exactly the same amount as you. But I, I would I would say that goes back to our earlier question, which was, you know, don't work for organizations like this. Yeah. Right, that's the real root of that problem. Is not the salary system. It's actually yep. the organization has like systemic problems. Um, and then too, I think in a lot of companies, like there is more variability in pay than what you're describing. I think the formula you guys have, I don't know how standard that. I don't is. think it's. That standard, I've always yeah. got the feeling. There's no. I always got the feeling that it was just you know whatever it took to get the people in is what they would actually pay. Like you said, it came down to how good of a negotiator you are. And programmers are terrible yeah. negotiators, almost to a man or woman. They're horrible at it. So if you put in front of them a system where, oh, you have to be a really good negotiator, and you'll get you know, 10 or 20% more salary, then they know they're getting screwed. Just, they just yeah, know. and that just makes me sad. I don't want to, you know, my goal isn't to screw people. Right. And, 
Well, I think you get it, obviously. You, you run a company tailored to hire good programmers, and it's all about providing a good experience for programmers. But I don't think a lot of organizations do that. For them, programming is like a sideline. They hire salespeople. You know how salespeople right. work, right? It's all commission and it's all money. And you know, <laughs> it's all it's all based on negotiation. And they're all really good negotiators. So, in, in in a battle like that, the programmers always lose. Always. So. Here's an argument. Here's it's an argument I get into a lot, and I always win. Uh, you got two programmers. One of them is great. One of them's eh, like mediocre. You know, fifty percent. You feel bad to pay them. The, you, you pay them the same amount. Let's say that they're both working on the same kind of projects. They have equal skills. According to our level system at Fog Creek, they should both be 12s. They both have the same experience. They graduated the same year, but one of them just does twice as much work. Right. How, do you, how do you compensate them? Should you pay the one that makes twice as much work, does twice as much work more? Are you, are you asking me? Is this rhetorical? It's rhetorical. You actually I want you to answer this? it, and then I'll answer it, and then we'll sort of... <laughs> uh... Uh, I I don't know. I don't want to answer. <laughs> it's a trap. Walk right into it. It is a trap, and I don't want to answer well, it. Most people would say that the program that's more productive should be rewarded for that. And and I actually believe it or not disagree with that. This is uh, something that I could write about for for for, for months on end. Um, if you have a programmer that's not working out very well, just get rid of them. Don't p- play games by paying paying them a little bit less money. Just just. Just walk them if they're not very good. If they are good enough, you know, then you can help you know, put them on performance improvement plans or try to do what you can to try to... Okay, why is there a little exclamation point in Pamela? No, never mind. just wanted to make sure we were still recording. Um, you need to focus... I think you need to work on how, how good the performance is completely independently of the salary because I don't think being able to play with how much people, money people take home is really going to have as good an impact you know, as imp- it's not going to have a real as, impact. Let's take, let's take the really good performer, the great developer that just chews up everything he gives them. And then one day you call him to his office and say, you're a great programmer. I'm giving you an extra $1,000 a year so you can feel great about yourself. And then he says, oh, really? That's why I'm doing this? I'm doing this for the $1,000? You know, that's not very much. Okay, fine. So you give him an extra $6,000, an extra $20,000. And then he starts to feel kind of mercenary and is like, well, is this really worth the amount of money that I'm getting? And, and what you've done is you've displaced his own intrinsic motivation to do a good job because lo and behold, when you hired him fresh out of school, he started doing a great job right away without any kind of bargain that he would get extra money for doing a good job. He did it because that's the kind of person he is or she is the kind of person that does great work. And those kind of people, the people that we know that are the top developers, they are going to do a good job no matter what, no matter what kind of compensation system you put in front of them. See, Joel, I've taken this totally to heart. In Stack Overflow, we <laughs> I pay Jared and Jeff almost nothing at exactly. all. Exactly. And that's why they're such good performers. It's because I barely Exactly. Pay them. They're awesome. They're doing it out of love. And and the fact that you're not paying them <laughs> makes them love the site and the work even more. I, in fact, uh, Jeff and Jared, if you're listening, I just I'm reducing your pay now <laughs> even further. Based on or take the other side. You've got a you got a programmer who's kind of underperforming. There's a bunch of things you can do. One is you can say, okay, why is he, why is he underperforming? Is he having trouble getting things done? Is he uh, in the wrong job? Does he need uh, um, a little bit more motivation, or uh, should he just be fired? And you got all kinds of tools you can use to try to improve that programmer's performance. And if what you do instead is say, hey, I'm lowering your salary because you're not performing as well as that guy, that is the weakest possible tool because what you're doing is you're saying. You figure it out. You're getting less money. You figure out how to become a better programmer. And frankly, 
I, I know more than almost anybody at Fog Creek about how programmers at Fog Creek can be better programmers. And I'm not saying that out of conceit. It's just that I'm older and I'm more experienced and I know exactly what the problems are and I know whether they're fixable and I know, you know how, how to fix them. And I can give them all kinds of tools for becoming better programmers and I can train them and teach them and encourage them and set things up so that they can do a better job as programmers. And they don't really have the ability to do that. And if I just tell them I'm lowering your salary or you're not getting that raise that your friend is getting because you're not such a good programmer, that's just going to demotivate them even further. That's just a, that's just a, that's just a very blunt, blunt instrument. Especially for programmers who are proud of their work and they're proud of the good work that they do and they want to have pride in their this work. Is they one, don't want to be salespeople. They don't want to work on commission. Right. Well, this is one reason that I always felt like, you know, in the absence of a really good system like what you guys have, which is very form, you know, there's a formula that's tailored to the yeah. audience very, very strongly. Yeah. Uh, in the absence of, of that, I, I found that discussion of salary was like toxic. That's why I called it like Lord of the Flies because the more you talk about it, the more you obsess about it, the more you think about you know, am I getting what I'm worth? Is you know, am I getting more than Joe? Am I getting more than Jane? Yeah. It just becomes it, it ruins you on some level. And I mean, I don't, don't want to say like you know, the cliche money is the root of all evil because I mean, you need money to live, and money equals freedom in our society. So I'm not yeah. knocking the ability to make money, but on the other hand, there's a lot to be said for just doing things because you think they're the right thing to do, because you love them, because you enjoy them. You know, and that's really what you want to focus on. And, and to the point that you're focusing on you know, getting paid to the detriment of that other stuff. Right. It, it's really hurting you in, in the long and run. And don't forget that um, it's, it's not just, you know, if the individual, if it's, it's an individual programmer and you're thinking about them as an individual, but don't forget that they may have a significant other or a wife or a husband at home. And the issue of money between them is probably one of the most stressful things about that relationship, unless they're both sort of millionaires. But <laughs> for most people, the issue of money is often... Yes. A, a, a source of really unnecessary stress in the relationship. So anything you can do as an employer to not let there be that kind of stress where basically the, you know, the spouse at home is always telling the spouse at work, oh, you got you to gotta ask that guy for a raise. You got to ask him for a raise. Why don't you negotiate well? You know, you're just creating a, just a world of, you're just creating an opportunity for a world of unhappiness. And if you can just kind of take that discussion off the table, pay people fairly and justly and well, and, and just, just not worry about it too much. You know, it's funny, the one, the one piece of advice, my dad was not a big advice dispenser. His, uh, his big piece of advice to me was, uh, take my advice and do as you please. <laughs> so he wasn't a big advice giver, but one piece of advice he did give me was, when I, when I was getting married, he said, you know, he's like, just watch out for the money thing. He's like, I've seen that become a big problem for a lot of people. Yeah. So that's essentially what you're saying, which is, you know, there can be this external pressure uh, in the relationship around where does the money come from? How are you going to have money? All this stuff. And I, I think you're very fortunate. I think you marry well if you marry somebody that understands the whole money thing and doesn't get obsessed with it as yeah, well. If, if they run a portfolio for a hedge fund, that's a good, that's a good choice of somebody to marry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, Bring tons of money. Mar marry a rich person. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, then you don't have to worry about it. Well, no, but just think about like you, you, you had a fight with your spouse at home about how much money you make. And then you have to go into work and you have to confront your boss about that thing, you know? It's just, oh, oh God, the pain. And then just the joy at Fog Creek of being able to say, okay, here's our system. You know, when you have another six months of experience, you're going to move from this level to this level, and your base is going to go up to here. Or we could ship Fogbug 7 one month earlier, and that'll get us an extra $400,000 in revenue, which has to be divided up in such a way that your share of those profits will be, you know, substantially more significant than your base salary. So... Right. Let's talk about chipping Fogbug 7 sooner. 
Right. No, that's totally the right way. And I think, yeah, you guys do it in a very, very smart way. I don't know if it'll last. You know, I, I'm, maybe I'm idealistic. Maybe I live too long on a kibbutz. But I like it. Yeah. Well, that was a great discussion. I'm glad I, that came cool. up because uh, people on Twitter urged me to ask you. Now I'm very glad All right, you well, did. Oh, oh, so let me the, talk uh, about something. Like I said, April, April Inc. magazine. Yes, April Inc. magazine. And I'll obviously have the show notes. We'll have more detail. Um, so uh, one of the things I want to talk about is over the weekend we had a, uh, a little incident, if you will, with uh, human-entered spam. Oh, yeah, I saw that uh, on your blog. Yeah, yeah. So we have all these systems in place to defeat bots because our goal, number one, was, okay, what if somebody wrote a bot that did nothing but spam our system or did nothing but you know, malicious things in our system? So we spent a lot of time thinking about this and put in a lot of safeguards and so forth. Um, and those have been effective. I mean, we haven't really had a problem with bots. Uh, we did have one uh, Stack Overflow user who uh, built a utility to sort of pull a page in Stack Overflow, but he forgot the timer code that makes it pause <laughs> so it doesn't yeah. do it as fast as possible. Yeah. So we did have that, but that wasn't really a bot. That was just uh, a, a really bad bug in someone's code where it was retrieving a page literally as fast as it could. Right. I don't know how he didn't notice this. You know, we talk about unit testing. Put in a unit test for that, please. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> that you're not retrieving the page a hundred times every second. Yeah, that's the. Um, that's the. Um, that's the. Never mind. It's not one of the solid principles, so I can't really say what it is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's just uh, te- please test your code. Oh, well, they were <laughs> type of principle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm a little little bitter about that one still, but he did, to his credit he did fix it once he once we figured out where it's coming from and all that stuff. Uh, but aside from that, we haven't had a problem with bots. But what we didn't consider was that you could have a bored user sitting there typing the captcha in. Mm-hmm. Because we basically have a CAPTCHA. We do it the same way Google does, which is if you do stuff too much, we make you enter a CAPTCHA. We're like, okay, that's weird. You have to enter a CAPTCHA now. Um, and we're like, okay, this is good enough. But we didn't think about the board user is going to sit there and just enter CAPTCHAs as fast as he can. Yeah, or they may be, um, they may be using uh, like Mechanical Turk to pay people to do it. No, no. it was – no. We, we have confirmation from the guy in the comments. I'm pretty sure it's him. Yeah. And then I was a little bitter, too. You saw my video. It was actually a guy from Australia, which is reinforcing all my negative stereotypes from – uh, Flight of the Concords about <laughs> Australia. It's New Zealand, mate. It's not, it's not Australians, yeah. it's New Zealand does. Have you been watching Concord sure. season two? And you know how you know the difference between New Zealanders and Australians? Well, it's the way they pronounce the, the short letter I in words like fish. So uh, an Australian was a fish, and a New Zealander was a fish, like a, almost a U, fish. Yeah, really? so you got to listen to like fish. Versus. Well, you're an honorary New Zealander, right? We talked about this in one of the earliest podcasts. Like, you had to get a passport or something, yeah. and through some, you know, machinations, you ended up. Uh, I, I, I love Flight of the Concords. Yes, right. yes. So that was funny. That fed into all my, you know, negative stuff. And I'm, I'm only kidding, obviously. By the way, I, I, I do think this person was from Australia, based on the IPs that we saw, um, but I don't. It against. I was just kidding about that. I was just trying to make light of a very, very annoying situation because it, it really is frustrating as a site owner to see your site filled up with just just horrible things, right? That or make you look bad, make make everyone around you look bad. Yeah. So I mean, it was kind of a serious thing, actually. So the fact that I'm trying to make fun of it is really my way of diffusing the tension <laughs> that I was experiencing yeah. based on this activity. So well, you set those my fires. Feeling, so that was one thing, and that did that did. Those wildfires. I did. I did burn down the building. Building burned like down you know, I, I a third them. of Australia. 
<laughs> that, in my in my opinion, was a little bit extreme Uh-oh. way of getting your frustration out. I'm sure many innocent koala bears may have lost their habitats. Yes, not the ruse. But I, I have a, a minority opinion on this, which is that people that care enough to do this are kind of invested in the site. I might have talked about this before, but it's basically another variant of, you know, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Like, I don't really want to go out of my way to really alienate these people because I feel like they're just going to come at you even harder. So if you can sort of diffuse the tension and say, okay, that was a fun laugh and we fixed it and, you know, please don't do that again. Um, yes. Ultimately, it's better than being very vindictive and holding a grudge and I don't know. There's no real good, perfect way to handle that situation, but I think there's a lot of ways to make it really bad. Right. Uh, really much, much worse. So I generally, <laughs> anyway, that's my yeah. philosophy there. Yeah, my philosophy is you just sort of have to take, like the way that you deal with the public when the public is being difficult is you have to remove yourself one level. You have to imagine yourself as being the operator of a puppet show and you're not actually interacting with a person. You have a puppet that's going to interact with the person. And your job is not to respond as a person, but to imagine what the ideal puppet would say in this situation and then make the puppet say that thing. Well, wow, that's very difficult, though, because people get very emotional. Yeah. I think you have to almost be like Spock. You have to be, mm-hmm. like, above emotion. And right. I don't know. I think just to me, it's, okay, you don't really have to be above emotion, but I think having a sense of humor, it goes, like, 90% of the way towards fixing the entire mm-hmm. problem. Uh, if you're a very passionate person, you'll still, you know, say things. And, and you know, <laughs> to be fair, a lot of times when I interact with people, like, I got chastised an email for closing some uh, or declining some user voice items and what in a way that the user felt was not really respectful. And, uh, you know, I disagreed a little bit. I didn't think it was disrespectful, but, you know, it was curt because yeah. I have a lot of things I have to look at. Yeah, it's at. hard to get the tone to come and, across right on email or electronic. Yeah, and, you know, being, you know, brevity isn't always the right way to do mm-hmm. that. Um, yes. And I apologize for that, but, you know, I, I don't always do it perfectly either is, is, is what I'm trying to say. But, and I think you had a blog entry about this where you're talking about the deli owner mm-hmm. who was arguing with the woman. Right. She had had a bad service, and she was telling the owner of the deli, hey, I had this really bad service. I come here all the time, and this waiter was really rude to me. And the guy actually argued with her. <laughs> exactly. It's like, he oh, actually made it worse. He's my best waiter. He's not that rude you're, to you. You're wrong. You must have done something yeah. wrong. <laughs> right. This is my point. It's like, don't make it worse. Like, I don't think I make it worse. Like, I may not do a perfect job of handling it, but I do not think that I make it worse, um, hopefully. So that's my strategy for dealing with some of that stuff. Uh, we also have a little bit of news on the server front. I did actually buy uh, another web tier server, mm-hmm. just because. <laughs> uh, so we have three web tier servers that are all identical now. And then the backup server that I've talked about on our previous podcast, those arrived actually today. Jeff's going to go down and uh, get those set up and installed. Nice. Uh, as far as the actual work on Stack Overflow, it's going to slow down a little bit because we're embarking upon the massive... Well, it's not really massive. We're only refactoring two database tables, mm-hmm. but they happen to be the essential tables, basically the post tables. Right. We realized, we basically built, and I know you disagree with this, but we've built up a lot of technical debt on the database side, where we realized that the way we store data is like not even remotely really correct. Mm. <laughs> it's kind of like, do you remember Twitter, all the problems Twitter had? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they had some crazy database schema that was just ridiculous. Apparently it was like horrible. Well, I mean, I think they, they had, I think they had, I think that with Twitter, they envisioned it as a content management system, basically. It was short, very short blog posts, and it actually became a communication mechanism where, yeah. and, and where you just have a sort of different idea. So with the content management system, the idea is throwing a lot of stuff in a big table and then selecting bits of it out. And with the communication system, it's very much about 
carefully routing things in the most efficient way to where they need to get as quickly as possible. But, but again, that's technical depth they built, built up, and they took sure. way too long in paying it off, in my opinion, and it really screwed them. I mean, it really did, because it gave them a horrible... They became basically a laughing stock. Yeah, and now, they're, now um, where are they? They're obviously. gone. They're gone. Daiku, <laughs> Daiku and Pounce have totally trashed them in the marketplace. <laughs> yes. No, there's I don't even use Twitter anymore. Yeah. Yes. There, it was really bad. You make life, but I don't think you really used Twitter at the time when it was that unreliable. I mean, it really got to the point where I'd get angry because it was just it was so unreliable. Isn't that weird? Um, and it was kind of like that weird though. But that didn't matter. It didn't. It didn't matter. It didn't make a hell. Of, didn't amount to a hell of beans. Well, it, it's kind of like I felt like Twitter was like my friend because it was a conduit to all this great conversation with all these really interesting people and my friends and mm-hmm. and I felt like it, Twitter became my proxy friend. And when Twitter like was unreliable, I felt like it was like actively slighting me as a friend like it was letting me down as a friend i know this sounds crazy and i apologize no, that's, not crazy what I'm saying. But that's what i'm asking is how did they survive that how on earth they barely kept it going i mean it was like the minimum level required for competence yeah. no it was well below <laughs> uh, that. and i mean i mean literally that. the minimum it was well below the minimum level for competence but but somehow they they emerged victorious and so, yeah, well, they hung out there. I, they, you know, again, an idea transcends. Yeah, I guess so. I think that yeah. this really lightweight way of interacting is much, much better than the Facebook way of this, you know, formal network of friends. It's just a bunch of bull as far as I'm concerned. You really just have a, a bunch of strangers that are trying to connect. Mm-hmm. And Twitter models that so accurately and is very satisfying to me personally. So I, I get it completely. Um, but anyway, it's a small digression, but... Our, our technical debt needs to be paid down, and the main burden of our technical debt at the moment is the database by far. Right. Just the way we construct queries is just kind of weird. We have to do just ridiculous number of joins to get really trivial, trivial information back out of the system yeah. um, to build pages and stuff. And it, it just it – just, the way I know I have technical debt is when I like sort of I, – I, I sort of have this sigh, this heaving sigh I give when I have to do something. I'm like, oh, now I have to do this again. Yeah. You know, because every time you do it, it's annoying. Mm-hmm. Every time you do it, it's annoying. And it's kind of like the busted screen door on your house or some little thing, right? It doesn't seem like it really matters in the big scheme of things. Oh, it's only a broken screen door. But it bothers me every time I walk in and out of the house. Every time I think, oh, this is so annoying. And it just, that, this, you know, sand in the gears of your life that I think is really discounted in terms of the overall effect it has on your well-being. Right. And I think this applies to projects, too. Like these little things, like, oh, it's just, you know, it's slightly inefficient way to store the data, but, it, but it's so annoying. It makes what should be fun and pleasurable sort of unpleasant on some mm-hmm. level. And you, you sort of slowly stop wanting to do it. So I think you have to stop and pay it down um, and solve the underlying problem rather than just putting patches on top I think of it's, it. Like one thing we could do is materialized views. And didn't you bring this up on a previous podcast, the materialized views? I don't know. That's a, I, I can't remember. That I know. What I was saying is basically make a view that represents the way you really wish the table was. That's as right. It, that's, well, a materialized view. But, but again, that's not really fixing the, the real root no, of the problem. Well, you do it two steps. I, I agree. Step number one, you fix okay. the code. And step number two, you fix the database. So basically, that, because having a view like that allows you to have some code that's still working against the old tables the way they are now, and some code that's been ported. So you can port the code like sort of one step at a time into the new, uh, the new model, and you can keep everything mm-hmm. running. So basically, you can come in one day and make a new view that represents 
what you wish the tables had been designed like in the first place. And nothing else changes. It's a view that nobody uses. And the next day, you come in and you find one piece of code that you want to fix, and you just port that piece of code to using the new view. And, uh, and then you launch it on the site, and you basically everybody's banging on it. And so you can do it very, very gradually, one step at a time, because at, at all times until you're done, your database supports both ways of looking at the data. Until finally, you just remove the old tables and replace them with a the new view. And at that point, you know that all the code works against the new kind of view. Does that make sense? It does. But you know what's interesting is we had talked about you know, the approach towards education in terms of learning a new language. You advocated sort of the Big Bang model. Just go in and just learn <laughs> something radically different, like Haskell. Yeah. Um, and I didn't agree with that. I was like, oh, no, I'm more incremental. You know, learn Java, learn C Sharp, then learn Ruby or you know, Python, and just keep evolving up the ladder a little bit piece by piece. Um, and I think I have the opposite opinion here, which is that I think occasionally you need to go and just break all your code. Okay. Just go in and just break the hell out of it. And like, there's something energizing about that because you're, you're making it better. Like You're tearing it down to build it back up. You're not destroying it because realize these are two really important tables, but there's plenty of other tables we have. You know, not everything will be broken. A lot of stuff will be broken, but not everything. Uh, so we're not like rewriting the entire app. Um, but making these major changes is kind of liberating on some level. Like I know I was talking to Jared, and he actually posted something on Twitter about, <laughs> do you remember the movie Flash Gordon? <laughs> yeah, with an awesome the soundtrack. Really campy like, movie. Is it Queen? Is that Freddie Mercury? Yeah. Yeah, Queen Freddie Mercury. So he Gosh. actually quoted the part of the ah. video where... Mm, Savior of the right. Universe. Bum, 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 That's bum. right. That's right. Fantastic, fantastic movie. He quoted the part with the Hawkman going, who wants to live forever? <laughs> you know, and you're just flying and swooping in. You're making all these big changes, but you feel good about it because, you know, it's just, it's kind of like you're going into battle with your friends and you're, you know, you're ultimately going to emerge victorious. You're going to win against this thing. It's just a question of how long it takes. Okay, why don't you make uh, yourself always a little, uh, what do you call it, a tag in your source control version control system right before you... Oh, we've already done a branch. Believe me, we branched this big time. On this, this is thing. sort of interesting, you know, because it's sort of like, you know, a half dozen of one, six of the other. There are two ways of doing this, right? You could do it the gradual way or you could do it the all-at-once way. And making that judgment call, obviously, you could talk to a million people and they w- you would eventually get them all to agree that it, it is sort of a judgment call. And in some cases, it's better to go one way and some cases, it's better to go the other way. But there's sort of a very fine judgment line there. And that's really where programmers' metal is proven, right? Do they make these judgment calls the right way? You know, a lot of times you're just going, you're going on instinct, you're going on motivation, you're going on Freddie Mercury, whatever. <laughs> that's right. You got to go with the Freddie Mercury. Right. Way. I mean, come on, right. it's Freddie Mercury. That's awesome. You want to go? The, you want to do it the awesome yeah. way, don't you? I mean, yeah. Oh, but, but sometimes you may not. Sometimes you may just know that you have an organization that can't withstand that, or you may really be afraid and really, really scared and want to do. It a more step-by-step way, and you just have to make a judgment call, and it's like anything else, like trying to decide whether to go through the yellow light. It's those judgment calls that determine how many accidents you get into and how fast you get home. That's right, but we know it'll take six to eight weeks. That, that's, that's for sure. That's right. Yeah. Uh, do you want to do a couple of, uh, we got a little bit of time left, do you want to do a couple of questions from the uh, Stack Overflow archive? I got kind of old one. Uh, you have yeah. one? Okay, let's it's do kind it. of old, 513170. And the question is, choosing a technology stack for a small budget conscious business. Uh, he is the sole IT person for a tiny company with five employees, including the owners, and he's in charge of everything related to technology. And of course, the first thing he did is he is initiating a complete ground-up rewrite of our entire ERP system, which had been hacked together using VBScript and SQL Server. 
and is a cesspit of horrible code and bad practices. Uh, he has no budget whatsoever. The company is incredibly cheap, doesn't, spend, doesn't want to spend any kind of money on software development. And is just sort of wondering, should I use Java? Should I use Ruby on Rails? Should I use the Microsoft stuff? I can't get any money to do anything right. And uh, so that's the question. The, the one thing it was almost impossible for people to resist saying, I mean, maybe LAMP is the right answer. You know, this is a company that fundamentally doesn't understand IT if they're not willing to spend money to make money in in IT. Right. Okay, I was waiting for you to finish reading the question or whatever. Oh, I I am. I'm I'm Uh, reading. I'm just waiting. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's a long question. You don't have to read the whole thing. I'm just trying trying to get to the point of what do you do? You're a cheapo company. You got a cheapo company that doesn't want to spend any money on anything. And so you're basically, you're using less good tools and you're being less productive. And, uh, well, yeah. I, I, I think the, the answer here, um, I think, highlighted the main problem. So I'm inspired that he actually chose this as the exception answer as well, which is if you're not willing to spend any money, mm-hmm. there's your problem right there. Forget whatever it is you're trying to do. Right. We're not willing to spend money on this means we, we, we think this thing has no value. It's also a bizarre fallacy. Right, because they do have a full-time <laughs> IT guy, so they are spending one full-time salary on this, no matter what they do. And the question is, like, how efficiently do you use that full-time salary? Right. I mean, if 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 the problem is not spending five thousand dollars for a SQL Server license or whatever, they, and and how much is he paying this guy in salary? It's just it seems a very very unusual kind of miscomprehension. Small businesses usually aren't that stupid about how much people cost compared to tools. Well, actually, reading through some of this, I don't know. I mean, it, I got to say, some of the Microsoft licensing stuff can be kind of onerous for small business. Like, he's talking about the SQL Server licenses, which are incredibly expensive. Yeah. Like $5,000. I mean, that's just a lot. All right, just use MySQL. You don't lose anything. Yeah. I, still, I, I, I think the root problem is you're working for a company that right. puts no value on the thing it is that you're doing. Yep. So Get out of there. that's what you need to fix before you even think about the technology stuff. So maybe you want to think about like explaining the value that you're bringing to the business a little bit better. Like really sit down and analyze like what is it that you do at the small company and how does it really contribute to the bottom line, whatever product it is that they make or thing that they sell. I think it may um, be, and really yeah, it may really be a case where this guy just doesn't know. You know what I mean? Like, like the person asking this question is not, I, I don't know this for a fact, but he may just not be on the same page as the owner is about what's important, what's worth spending money on, and what the appropriate investments are in IT. So, for example, taking a, a working ERP system, no matter how bad the code is, uh, if it's working, and then rewriting it from scratch, um, or initiating a rewrite it from scratch, that doesn't necessarily sound like it may be the most cost-effective thing for this business to do may sound like the thing, the most ideal thing for a programmer to do or the most engineeringly appropriate thing, but it may not have the highest return of investment of anything he could possibly do. It might. I don't know. Well, I'm a little scared, too, that this particular person is use, throwing around all these enterprise-y terms when he works for a five-person company. Mm-hmm. Um, that concerns me a little. Yeah. Um, an ERP, ERP system. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, honestly, I don't even know what ERP means. Honestly, no. I don't even know what that it means. It means $300,000 annually, annually to Siebel. So I, I guess in a way, I don't know. I, 
you really got to go back and and look at that relationship you 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 have with the people who own the business. I I've been in the situation of working for a small business where I was essentially the IT guy. I did everything. I did programming, computers, anything that they did. And you know me, I'm a minimalist, so I I would always put in the minimum amount of process necessary to move the business forward. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the kind of mentality you want to have at a small business. You want to do things that are log- that work for you know small businesses with small budgets and you know te- a limited technical staff. You're not going to embark upon these you know enterprisey things that are going to take like we. And Jeff will remember this. This is funny because Jeff was involved in this. We were looking at bringing in Outlook, and initially I was for it, mm-hmm. but then I became against it once I looked at like how complicated Outlook was to set up. Like we needed or exchange, exchange, excuse server. me, exchange. Yeah. Yeah, Outlook is the front end for Exchange. And I was like, wow, this really doesn't really make sense. This is adding a lot of complexity to our setup. I was like, why don't we just set up like a little SMTP or POP3 server? Right. You know, and, and that was kind of my solution. So right. you, it's a fine line. And small business is, is very challenging. So Yeah, there's always, there's always a question about what should a business do itself and what should it outsource? Um, like, should, should this business even be have an IT person or should they just hire some good IT company to take care of their needs? Um, well, that would cost money, Joel. They don't want to spend money. You understand? Yeah, but they could lay the guy off. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, there's an, there's an answer for Lauren. I don't think that's the solution Wayne M was looking no, for no, either. <laughs> uh, you know, I I kind of do have an answer to that, which is sort of a general business strategy thing. Which is that if you're doing something in house and you feel like maybe you should be outsourcing it, and you're having this question. You should ask yourself if you can sell this service to other businesses. So if you're a hotel like this one, and you do an enormous amount of laundry every day, you just got millions and millions of towels and sheets to wash every single day. Do you have your own laundry in the basement or do you send it out to a professional laundry service? Well, if the answer is that, that you could sell a laundry service to the other hotels in the same neighborhood, if you could do that and be competitive, then by all means have your own laundry shop. But if you don't want to be in that business and you couldn't do that on a competitive basis, then your own laundry shop is just sort of a waste of money. You're not going to be doing it as well or as cheaply as the, the generic provider. So you're saying, okay, A, outsource some of the stuff. Well, that's how to make the decision. And, yeah, like it seems to me like whatever the small business is, no. you know, why, why can't they use off-the-shelf software in a lot of these cases? Well, it's funny you mention that because the, the small business that I'm talking about that I worked at, the software was part of the product that we were selling. Right. So that was an advantage because it, it's clear where you fit in in the business. You're part of the, you're part of the business that makes money. Yeah, no, that's cool. Which... That's awesome. it's a great place to be. Yeah. So if you can convert the small business into a business where they sell your software to make money, that's going to obviously be a lot more clear where the revenue is coming from, the value you're bringing to the company versus, you know, you're just plumbing. Mm-hmm. You know, your ethernet cabling, your, you know, pipes that are required to, you know, move the water around. Oh, sure. So, yeah, that's a real interesting question and I think like a lot of the questions that we get, it's it's it, it's how deep do you want to go um, looking at the answers to this? Right, right. Do you want a superficial answer like, oh, use LAMP. LAMP is awesome. Or do you want the, yeah. maybe you shouldn't even work there answer. <laughs> or maybe you should, you know, get rid of your own job uh, answer. Yeah. I don't know that people are going to like those answers. This is, you know, um, this actually reminds me of something. The fact that you get to choose your own answer on Stack Overflow, <laughs> which actually reminds me of uh, a problem in the Orthodox Jewish community, which I'm going to have to bring up, and a small number of our listeners are going to know what I'm talking about. And in the Orthodox Jewish community, a lot of times you may have the question as to what you should do in a certain circumstance, like, is this particular chicken kosher? You know, it stepped on a 
dead bird's neck or something. You know, like there, there may be situations where what you're required to do by Jewish law is not really open and shut, and you just don't know what to do. And what you're supposed to do is ask a rabbi. And then whatever the rabbi says then becomes, you're then required to do that as soon as the rabbi tells you what to do. That's, that's what rabbis do. They answer the questions, and you're required to do what they do. And they're required to take all kinds of things into account. So, for example, if a poor person asked a rabbi whether a chicken is kosher, the uh, rabbi would be likely to say that it is kosher. And if a rich person asked a rabbi if a chicken was kosher, the rabbi would be likely to say that it is not. Um, so there's a certain amount of humanity in the questions and the answers. But apparently there's a service that somebody was trying to set up where you could see long databases. And, and this is a long time ago. They were on CD-ROMs, these long databases of questions and what the various rabbis had said about them. So you could make sure that you asked the appropriate rabbi the question <laughs> to get you the answer that you wanted to your particular question. And that's kind of what Stack Overflow is like. You get to choose the answer that you want. Well, you know, while you were talking there, I looked up askarabbi.com. Yeah. Oh, is that taken? And unfortunately, it's not. It's, it looks like it was there, but it has since disappeared. Like, there's fragments of it that are available, but the site itself is not up. But uh, that's great. It's kind of like Stack Overflow for religion. Right? We could. We could make a, a religion Stack Overflow. It'd have to be. Have to. Ask, askarabbi.com, and you could vote up the correct answer, and it's, you know, it's all interpretive anyway, right? Mm-hmm. It is. Okay. Uh, we're kind of out of time. This is the part where we forget the phone number, remember? Yeah, I, I don't even have a hope of getting the phone. <laughs> uh, I'll do it. I'll do it. Okay. So Fire away. <laughs> uh, we do have a wiki where people who are uh, unable to listen to the podcast can actually participate and actually read transcripts of what Joel and I were saying here um, that people can help contribute to. Uh, that is linked from the show notes. Uh, we also have a phone number if you'd like to submit a audio question of 90 seconds or less for Joel and I to answer on the air. You can do that at 646-826-3879. You can also email us a audio file at podcast at stackoverflow.com. Use a uh, freely available format, obviously, so we can listen to it. And if you're going to submit an audio question, please uh, do spell your name so we'll have some hope of getting it correct in the transcript notes that I put together. And I think that's it. Did I get it all, Joel? Yeah, there's one more thing which I should add. At the end of last week's uh, podcast, uh, the, there was a sort of a trailer on the, there for the people that listened all the way until the very, very bitter end in which I told a joke about Ben Kamen's app, the iPhone that measures things. Uh, it's called Ruler Phone. Uh, so I just didn't know, know the name at the time. I just wanted to mention that. So if you're looking for a little $4 app for your iPhone... They can be used to measure stuff. Uh, it's getting very good right. reviews, except by that kid in Australia who thought it was not a very good game. Yes, it's a terrible game, but a fun ruler app. Yeah. R- ruler phone is at benkamens.com slash ruler phone. Cool. Okay. I guess that's All it. All right. See you, next see you week. guys next week. Bye. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood.
The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.